millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello all and welcome to Stories of Scotland. This is Annie doing a wee interlude episode as we're preparing the current season and we have some incredible history and folklore episodes to share with you soon from clan wars to giants. So thank you so much for bearing with us. Jenny and myself have been in America and Jenny met her wee nephew for the first time. She was very excited about that. And now we're both currently writing an awesome new season. However, in the meantime, to tide us over, I've got a new story from myself and a wonderful old story from Jenny, which was originally from our Patreon. And both of these tales are about dragon-like creatures. So let's begin with something fresh yet very ancient. It's folklore forged in dragon fire. We're going back to Scotland in the medieval period, the 11th century to be precise. It's a turbulent time, 
marked by alliances and clashes between powerful kingdoms and rulers who are fighting for control. Borders between territories are in constant shift as powers are formed and fractured. Now let's focus on one of these groups, the Norse Gaels. They are claiming their place in the history books, seizing land and seas for their own. They are a community of mixed Gaelic and Norse ancestry, stemming from Norse settlers who intermarried with native Gaels. Now this might seem like an unexpected mix. Certainly for me, one of the most prominent histories of Norse-Gael relations that I think of is the Norse Viking raiders who sacked religious abbeys and massacred monks. However, by the 11th century, the Norse Gaels have their cultures emulsified, just like an unexpectedly distinctive and powerful mayonnaise, which is binding together the Kingdom of the Isles, from the Isle of Man to the Outer Hebrides. Now, one of the rulers of the Norse Gaels that we're going to look at today is named Godred Proven, often called Gori or Ori, which comes from the Gaelic, but uh, to be honest, I love the name Gori because I think it sounds a wee bit like an Australian drinking nickname. Anyway, though Gori's origins are slightly obscured and mysterious, he made a lasting impact on these islands and left a long-standing legacy as a notorious warlord. Now, being a notorious warlord has highs and lows. One of the main disadvantages is that when a problem arises which can be fixed with a heavy sword or axe, your warrior chief is definitely the one who is expected to be at the front holding that weapon. And unfortunately, the lives of notorious warlords tend to be littered with these opportunities to raise weapons and to stab or swipe away whatever problems destiny has put in your path. Yet, this myth about Gauri is one of both strength and intelligence, which I think is why I like it so much. So one of the islands that he rules, Isla, is pleading for him to come to their defence. Isla is the southernmost island of the Inner Hebrides. Nowadays, folk call it the Queen of the Hebrides. Isla has a rugged charm and a rich history. And like much of Scotland, the inhabitants demand a lot of their ruler, or else they will choose a new one by whatever means possible. And this is when we're making the leap from history to mythology. Because amidst the untamed beauty of Isla, raged a dragon of unparalleled ferocity. This was a serpentine beast, draped in emerald scales, with each claw as big as a Viking longship. The dragon was a living tapestry of the island's darkest secrets, each scale whispering forgotten stories of bloodshed and treachery. Its eyes blazed like the forge of a blacksmith, piercing the souls of the bravest warriors in all of Scotland. To even look upon this dragon would give the strongest warrior a terror within, a fear that this dragon could set alight the very marrow of their bones. It was a gruesome sight. 
especially on a Sunday morning after a night out. The dragon's wings were vast and tattered as though the remnants of a forgotten age when these creatures ruled the skies like cruel gods. And this dragon had brought its full wrath to Isla, settling near the area of Ballygrant in the north of the island. Whenever night set, people would hear it roaring like booming thunder. And much like thunder, everyone would be hoping and praying that the storm that was this dragon was not approaching them, that it was not coming to burn their homes or eat their cattle or worse, their kin. Many had tried to defeat the dragon and yet all had perished in their attempts. Skeletons of great warriors littering the glen. The legend says that there was not a family in all of Isla who had not lost a soul to the never-ending hunger of the dragon. The beast was a tyrant, hated by all. And so, the people called upon Gori Crovin as their warrior chief to rid them once and for all of this horrific beast, to set them free from this dreadful plight. Nagori was not one to run away from a fight, but even he could see that in a battle of strength, he would not win against this dragon. It would have to be a fight of wits, and Gori did not think that the dragon would agree to settle their differences over a game of chess, so he would need to trick it in some other way. So Gori decided to use the dragon's size against it. The dragon looked as though it weighed as much as a small castle, and it would not be taken down easily. But this may be a disadvantage for it. Gori was also fearfully aware that if he tried and failed to kill this dragon, he would not get a second chance, because he would become a dragon snack, and nobody wants to be a dragon snack. More than anything... Gori wished to avoid that grisly fate, and so he began to weave a cunning plan. First, he anchored his great ship in Loch and Dal, and then he commissioned the crafting of numerous barrels. Now, each of these barrels was to be fitted with a razor-sharp spike, impaled through their sides, so that they were semi-hidden. Now, Gori created a bridge from these barrels, which were wooden and floated easily. This bridge spanned all the way from the shore out to Gori's great ship at the heart of the loch. Anyone who looked upon these barrels would just think he had created an elaborate bridge. But if you looked closer, you could see that there was something not quite right about the barrels. But these spikes within the barrels were just one part of Gori's plan though it was a very risky plan indeed. Next, Gori gathered up all of the horses on the island, and he carefully placed them, each a mile or two apart from one another. The horses were set up in a zigzag path, all the way from the shores of Loch and Dal towards the dragon's lair. And these horses were tethered, waiting to see what noble duty they were about to undertake. Gori had done everything in his power to set himself up for success. Finally, he mounted the fastest of all the horses, 
and then he approached the dragon's lair. The very air seemed to hum with anticipation. Gari's heart was ablaze with determination. His broad shoulders bore the weight of the people's hopes, and his muscular arms tensed with purpose, eager to deliver an antagonizing blow to the dragon. As Gari's horse galloped ever closer, the dragon loomed large. Its scaled skin was a canvas of nightmares. With a primal scream, Gari raised his spear high and launched it towards the beast. And in that singular moment, the winds themselves seemed to hold their breath. And everything was still. As Gori cast his spear at the Leviathan, the beast stirred, provoked to anger. The spear awkwardly struck the dragon on its back, but it did very little damage at all. The dragon looked at the spear with the annoyance that you or me may look at a thorn stuck in our finger. And then its gaze shifted over to Gauri, and the irritation in the dragon's face turned to hunger. It charged at Gauri, and immediately he spurred on his horse to run, giddying it forward. This horse did not need much telling, and they bolted. Behind them, they were drawing the dragon's wrathful pursuit, Sometimes its nose was so close to Gauri it was almost touching the horse's tail, but he kept bringing it forward and forward and he had just enough of a head start. He pushed the horse to gallop faster than it had ever run before, though perhaps this was less due to his skill and more due to the gigantic dragon behind them. A couple of minutes passed, though it felt like a lifetime and Gauri saw the next horse he had put into place earlier. He saw it right up ahead, and they charged towards it. With just seconds before the dragon caught up to them, Gauri exchanged his tired horse for a fresh mount, leaving the spent animal behind. Now the dragon, in a ravenous frenzy, it devoured the weary horse that Gauri had just ridden so fast. And then it resumed its chase of Gauri on this new horse. This repeated again and again, Gauri riding as fast as he could to a new horse, switching on to the different ride, and then leaving the exhausted horse behind to be consumed by the dragon. Spanning all of Isla, a crisscross path of blood formed as one by one, these horses were eaten by the massive serpentine beast of the dragon. Finally, Gauri reached his carefully laid trap. Dismounting, he cautiously ran across the spiked barrels, dancing past any of the edges of the spikes. He knew where they were. He leapt aboard his waiting ship. But they remained in the loch. The dragon ate the final horse, and by now it was very full indeed. Now, if I was a dragon who had just eaten a few dozen horses, I would perhaps consider a wee nap. And this dragon may have been thinking the same thing. It was so full that it could hardly move. However, all dragons have their pride. And this dragon was not going to let a man go free who had dared to throw a spear at it. And the dragon did not know the barrels hid a great danger. It barely looked at them as it stumbled clumsily over the wooden gauntlet believing it was walking over the final bridge between its big teeth 
and the foolish warrior chief. But shockingly, its mighty form was too heavy for the barrels, and they burst beneath its weight, and the dragon was impaled upon the unforgiving spikes. With several spikes now impaling its body, the dragon looked up to see Gori bringing his sword down upon its head. And that is how the dragon died that day, a mixture of overeating, a spiked barrel bridge, and a bloodthirsty warrior chief together brought about the end of the tyrannical dragon of Isla. In the aftermath of this titanic clash, the inhabitants of Isla beheld the warrior chief standing triumphant over the defeated dragon as its corpse slowly sunk to the bottom of Loch Endol. Their hearts swelled with pride and gratitude, yet a storm of sorrow brewed just beneath the surface. For, in the process of vanquishing this beast, a terrible sacrifice had been made. The island's cherished horses had been offered up to the dragon's insatiable hunger. As Gauri returned to shore, his people's cheers ran out, their voices carrying both joy and yet mourning. The once gentle glens now lay scarred with the memories of fallen horses, each one having borne the chief onward in his desperate race against the dragon. The people's hearts were torn asunder, as if pulled by the twin forces of light and darkness. With the dragon's demise, the island's future seemed secure, yet there would be no horses to ply their fields that year. Perhaps, if you listen carefully, you could hear the spirits of these great steeds galloping on the waves of Isla, forever telling the tale of Gauri Crovin's victory, a bittersweet reminder of the cost of survival. And so, this is how Godred Crovin, Gauri Crovin, became legend, his name forever entwined with the memory of the dragon he had slayed. Really interesting story. I think the dragon serves as a symbol of adversity and fear, a seemingly insurmountable challenge that threatened the very existence of the people of Isla. The creature embodies the primal forces of chaos and destruction, representing the hardships and trials faced by the inhabitants of the island. And its defeat at the hands of Gauri Crovin, the warrior chief, signifies triumph of courage, cunning and determination over such adversity. The struggle of the dragon also underscores the idea that victory often comes at a massive cost, as evidenced by the sacrifice of the island's horses, who were of great value to the people. In a broader sense, dragons are often an allegory for the struggles that individuals and communities confront in their daily lives. It reminds us that the most daunting challenges can be overcome with bravery, resourcefulness and the unwavering spirit of a united community. Yet everything comes with a cost. I think perhaps in the modern world, I wonder if there are other creatures on our planet who would look at humans as the insatiable dragons, as we relentlessly deplete and damage the Earth's natural resources. In that case, I can see this story as a poignant reminder for the need of courage, innovation and collective effort to address the issues of our time. For us to perhaps change our ways before we sink to the bottom of Loch and Dahl. 
But then perhaps it's just me who feels like a dragon because I'm very hungry right now. Anyway, that's my monster folklore for this episode. So I'm going to pop on Jenny's story, which was originally a Patreon episode, and it's an absolute dream. I hope you enjoy it. Many thanks to our patrons who have supported us and have made it possible for us to make this content. If you'd like to support us, please head on over to our Patreon. Link will be in the episode description. Until next time, I hope you all have a beautiful day. Salangeva. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, wonderful patrons, old and new. Jenny here. This week I'm continuing with my dive into traditional Scottish fairy tales and I have to say that this one is my favourite so far and it is a beast so strap in and get ready. This tale comes from the Orkney Islands and it's called Asipato and the Meester Stoorworm. Now just before we get started, in doing my research for this I found that it was spelt Meester with M-E-E-S-T-E-R and Mester, M-E-S-T-E-R. So the version that I love the most has it as Meester, and so I will be using it as this throughout the story. However, if you know that the pronunciation or the spelling has become bastardised through the centuries and what the traditional version should be, then let me know in the comments. But without further ado, here is the tale of Asipato and the Meester Stoorworm. Our tale starts on a wee farm right bang in the middle of the main Orkney Island. And despite being right bang in the middle of an island in the cold North Atlantic Sea, no sea could actually be seen from this farm. On the farm, life was always bustling, for it was the home to a rather large family with a hard-working mother and father, seven boys, one girl, one old horse, one very fine fast horse 
and 23 chickens, give or take a few. It's hard to keep count, what with them running wild and the unpredictable mighty gusts of wind. The six eldest boys were awful hard-working, for there's never not something to be done when there's so many mouths to be fed. The girl was hard-working too. She was the second youngest of the lot, but she was often out earlier and in later than the other lads. And then there was the youngest of the large brood, Assey Patel. Now, Assey Patel could work if he really had to. And he would work if his brothers yelled at him enough. But really, Assey Patel liked nothing more than sneaking off to the creaky old barn, hiding amongst the haystacks and whiling away the hours in a world of his own. A world of heroes, adventures, gallant knights and damsels in distress. Dragons, giants and mythological monsters stalked through his imagination. Asipato would only ever come back from this world when one of his older brothers would grab him by the ankles, yank him from his hiding hole and put a shovel in his hands. There was always work to be done. The only person who ever entertained Assey Patel's entertaining imagination was his sister, Mary. Mary and Assey Patel loved to stay up late trading stories and helping each other build one tail taller than the next until their towering tail came crashing down on them in a wave of sleep. One day, Assey Patel and Mary were out on the road chasing rogue chickens in circles round the heather when all of a sudden, a rather fancy carriage came trundling round the corner. As Assey Patel wrestled with a defiant hen, the carriage stopped and its curtain pulled back. Behind the window sat the daughter of the King of the Orkney Islands. So shocked was Assey Patel to see this beautiful princess on their wee dirt road that he dropped his hen and it streaked away into the heather, clucking merrily as it went. The princess, smiling kindly and leaning out of her window, looked down at Mary and said, I am looking for a new maid, and I like the look of you. Would you come and work for me? You'd be starting this very evening, but I'll pay you well. Plus, there won't be a chicken in sight. Mary was shocked, but instantly she said yes. She'd pack up her things and start that very evening. And with that, the carriage continued its journey out to the mighty castle by the sea. Assy Patel and Mary hurried back to the farm to tell their parents the good news and get packing. And when Mary left that evening, walking alone down the dirt road into the sunset, Assy Patel shed a single tear. For he loved his sister dearly, and he would miss her very much. But... Before he could even wipe the tear from his cheek, he heard his brothers telling him to get back to work, for there was always work to be done. A few weeks after Mary had left, some fishermen came back from a trip with not a single catch, but with a tail that shook the whole island. For out on their voyage, they had seen a beast. But this was no run-of-the-mill sea monster, This was something so huge, so massive, and so truly gargantuan that half the crew of the boat had fainted upon sighting it 
fallen over the sides of the ship and been eaten within seconds. It was luck alone that the remaining fishermen made it back to land, for they had come face to slimy face with the dreaded Meester Stoorworm. It was said that this monster from the depths was so big that while its tail touched Iceland, its head reached down to John O'Groats. The people of Orkney knew of the Meester Stoorworm, and they dreaded it. For it was known to not only have an insatiable appetite and taste for humans, but also breath so toxic that just one blast of it over the shores of Orkney would wither every crop in the ground and even underground. No potato was safe. And so, upon hearing this dreadful tale, in a hurried panic, the king drew his council together and began to discuss what should be done about the impending danger of the Meester Stoorworm. For hours they discussed options, each one as useless as the next, for the beast could not be beaten. In the wee hours of the morning, a slow knock came at the door of the chamber. Come in said the king wearily. The council all turned and watched as the queen swept into the chamber. An audible, exasperated sigh came from one council member, and sly looks passed between the others. For the queen was not liked amongst the council, nor, for that matter, much of Orkney. For she was the king's second wife, and she seemed hell-bent on making life miserable for everyone especially for the princess. Good folk of the council, may I suggest a solution as to how to deal with this most dangerous of beasts? With no solution himself, the king conceded and said, Aye, let us hear it then. Well, it's not so much me that wishes to speak, drawled the queen, but rather the sorcerer. Who has the solution? An uncomfortable silence fell over the dimly lit room, for this Rasputiny sorcerer was even less trusted and less liked than the Queen. No one was ever quite able to put their finger on it, but he was both repulsive and alluring at the same time, and the folks of Orkney did not like this at all. The Queen, however, well, she and the sorcerer were best of pals, so much so that speculation was rife, and in the shadows of the castle, rumours were whispered that would make the king's beard curl. Alas, at a loss, the king granted the sorcerer permission to speak, and so, sliding into the room, the sallow-faced man said, a good folk of the Arcadian Council, may I always be at your mercy. For the solution that I bring to this most unfavourable problem is really quite severe. But in times of great danger, great sacrifice must be made. As I'm sure you have all been discussing the Meester Sturworm cannot be killed by any means that we have, and so, 
we must satiate its appetite to such an extent that it needs not any more from our land and leaves our shores satisfied and content. I have consulted the bones, I have read the stars, I have passed into realms beyond your comprehension, and the answer is clear. But I must warn you to brace yourselves, good leaders of this land, for although clear, it is not pure. The land of Orkney must for the next three weeks give forth to the beast. The council's expectant inhalation sucked the room of all warmth as the sorcerer continued. Seven young maidens. Uproar broke out. One middle-aged man clean fainted from his chair. The king, however, understanding the severity of both the problem and the solution, rose to his feet and roared, Silence! We have sat for countless hours, and we could sit for countless more, all while the Mr. Stoolworm threatens the lives and livelihoods of each and every person on my land. Sorcerer, if you are sure, then although this is no small sacrifice, it is smaller than what could be. And seeing no other way to overcome this beast, I consent. Send out the message immediately. Seven young maidens will be given to the beast in the morn. And so, in the morning, seven of the bonniest young lassies on all of Orkney were led to the shore. Behind them, the rest of the population watched on as the meester stirworm reared its great head. So large was this beast's great slimy noggin that it blotted out the sun. And in the moment of darkness that fell, it gobbled up the seven maidens. Then, with an almighty splash, the meester stirworm fell down into the depths once more. The following week, seven more young maidens were given to the beast, and then seven more. But the beast did not leave, as it was predicted to do. And in fact, after its third meal, it seemed keener than ever to stay. What, with a fresh supply of bonny lassies every week, why should it ever leave? The sorcerer told the king to keep going, to keep up with the weekly sacrifices, and, at a loss, the king conceded. And on the fourth week, seven more bonny young lassies were cruelly fed to the beast. By this point, every household in Orkney knew of a girl who had been taken, and the fear for the remaining lassies was high. Mothers and fathers hid their daughters, or cut their hair and put them in lads' clothings, or even tried to send them far away onto the mainland. But as the weeks passed, it became obvious that the good folk of Orkney were not going to allow this cruel practice to continue. Fearing revolt, the king turned to the sorcerer once more, and with the trace of a sly smirk upon his lips, the sorcerer said to the king, 
strong king of Orkney. You must know that what I say comes not from me, but from the gods above. And they tell me that the only thing that will fully satisfy this most mighty of beasts is a princess. There was only one princess on the island. The king's world collapsed around him, but he could not let all of his people's worlds collapse around them too. And so he dismissed the sorcerer and summoned his only child, the princess, to the chamber. And here the princess and her father speak softly for a short while and then embrace tenderly, the roaring fire warming them as they wept. But before the king would offer his own daughter to the gargantuan meester Stirworm, he would try his very best to slay this beast. But the king was an old man and no match for the monster, and so... He delayed the date of his daughter's sacrifice by three weeks, and in the meantime, he sent out a call to all men on Orkney and beyond. If you can come and slay this beast, then as a reward you shall have my daughter's hand in marriage, the kingship of this land, and the almighty Sickersnapper. Sickersnapper was the king's sword, But the sword was not made for him. It was, in fact, the ancient and powerful sword of Odin himself. The king's call rippled across the island and beyond. And soon it reached the ears of our young farm lad, Asipatil. He was horrified that the princess was the next sacrifice. For never in his life had he seen such a bonny lass. Since she had stopped on the road and swept away his sister, his dreams had been filled with windows and curtains, and each time the curtain was pulled back, her beautiful face shone out from behind it. But after the announcement, the curtain in his dreams would not so much as twitch, and whenever he lunged to rip it back, the window would crumple into dark nothingness and young Asipatel would awake in a fearful fit. One morning, he announced to his six older brothers that he was going to put his name forward to fight the beast from the deep. He was almost deafened by the roar of laughter that followed. His face burning from shame and rage, he ran to the barn, dove into his favourite hiding spot, and began dreaming of ways he could save the princess. But... Dreaming of ways to save the princess and actually saving the princess are two very different things. Soon the day came for all the men of the land to come forward and fight the Meester Stoorworm, and 36 brave men stepped up. But, upon travelling to the shore and looking out at their foe, 12 passed out, 12 turned on their heels and ran for the hills, and the remaining 12 dropped their weapons, returned to the king's castle, and drowned their terror with ale. And so, to the king's dismay, the final night came before his daughter's sacrifice. 
he pulled up his best soldier and told him to prepare a ship for the morning. Not a ship to carry the princess out, but a ship for himself. For he had to try everything to save his daughter. And if this is what it took, then he would try to fight the beast himself. His soldier was aghast. But, my king, you are old and weak. Thirty-six of the strongest men our land has to offer could not so much as approach the monster. There is no way, even with your sword, Sicker Snapper, that you can defeat this otherworldly foe. Alas, good soldier, I know. But a valiant death protecting the only thing I treasure more than my own life is better than having to live with myself after tomorrow. Prepare the ship. And so... Resigned to the grim task, the soldier began preparing the king's ship for the morning fight. That night, not a single soul in Orkney slept. Asipatl was tossing and turning endlessly in feverish anticipation. With each turn, a new plan for how to save the princess bubbled up from his imagination. But no matter the plan, it was thwarted as impossible by the next toss. Through the thin farmhouse walls, he could hear his parents arguing. His mother had taken his father's finest horse out, a handsome steed named Gaw Swift, and tried to ride it fast so that she could hear the latest developments in the Meester Sturworm saga from the surrounding farms. But the horse had not so much as cantered before falling into a slow trot. Why will you no tell me the secret o' your horse, Jack? For when you ride it, oh, it goes like the wind. There's no faster horse on this island. But for me, it's as well as going backwards. It's embarrassing. Do you not love me any more? Is that what it is? I tell you all my secrets. Why will you not tell me yours? Why can you not tell me the secret of making Goswift fly like the wind? Ah, good woman. I love you as I always have. Asipatl heard his father's voice soften. I trained Goswift myself, and it's my proudest achievement, I I suppose I can tell you, but you must never tell another soul, Ken. For what good is having the fastest horse when all can steal your tricks, hmm? Now listen here. When I want Goswift to stand still, I give him one good clap on the shoulder. When I want him to go like any other horse, I give him two good claps on the shoulder. But when I want him to fly like the wind, I whistle through a goose windpipe. Upon hearing this, Asipatl's heart began to sing the strangest song. It was the song of surety. And listening to this queer tune, Asipatl rose from his straw mattress, slid out of his room, down the hall, and out the front door. And just as he was leaving, he snatched his father's heavy riding jacket from the hook. He cut through the darkness into the stables, and quietly woke Goswift from his slumber. After securing his saddle, he led the horse out, and clapped it once on the shoulder to make it stand still. This it did, and Asipatl hoisted himself onto the steed's strong back. 
Then he gave the horse two claps on its shoulder and lo, it began to trot. But as no one in the farmhouse was able to sleep, they all heard this commotion and rushed outside. Amazed and confused at what they saw, they all attempted to pull Assipassel from Goswift's back. But before they could rein in the horse and its rider, Assipattel fumbled in his father's jacket pockets and pulled out the windpipe of a goose. Raising the bizarre tube to his lips, he blew through it with all his might. (laughs) (laughs) And upon hearing the whistle, the horse went whoosh. It was off. Goswift was going swiftly all right, and Assipato was barely holding on. But his family were long behind him now, and he was riding at the speed of wind towards the coast. As the ocean came into view, he saw out on the horizon the gaping maw of the Meester Stirworm. He already knew that his small strength alone would be no match for the monster. He would have to rely on his wits. But, upon seeing its true size, he really felt quite queasy. Just before he reached the shore, he gave Gawswift a quick two claps to the shoulder, and the horse slowed to a trot. Then, as he passed the last house before the beach, Assipato gave Gawswift a single clap, and it stopped. Sliding from its back, he tied it to the cottage's fence, and he saw that the gate was open. And so he followed the strange song in his heart, and he went through the gate. He tried the front door, and it was open too. In Assipattle crept, and quietly looked around the small cottage. He saw the wee old woman who lived there asleep in her armchair, and in front of her, a smouldering peat was giving out a glowing heat. Careful not to wake the dozing women, Asipatel edged towards the fire and gently lifted the smouldering peat from its grate. As he turned, he draped his father's riding jacket over the wee old lady, warmth for warmth. As he left the cottage, he saw a small pot hanging on the smoke-stained wall and so he took this too, dropping the hot peat into it as he left. And then he went down to the beach. As he crested the dunes, he saw the king's ship appear. The sun was just creeping over the horizon. Dawn was approaching. But the king would not be here for hours yet. And upon the ship, Assipattel saw one rather bored and cold-looking soldier guarding the vessel. He went to the edge of the water and shouted up, Here, good soldier, you're looking awful cold up there. It must have been the longest night of your life, eh? Why not come down onto the solid shore and run around for a bit? Maybe hop and jump around the rock pools. Some warmth will do you no harm. I'll come up there and guard the ship for you while you get your blood pumping again. But the soldier scoffed. It is my job to be tired and cold guarding this ship. I would not be much of a soldier otherwise. Assipattle grumbled in response. 
He would have to try a different tactic to get this man from the ship. And so he responded, Ah, well, cheers to you, good soldier. Don't mind me down here. I've come to get some mussels for my breakfast and cook them up good and proper. And with that, Asipato began rummaging around in the rock pools and digging a hole in which to drop his hot peat so as to boil some water for his breakfast. After a few moments of digging his hole, he exclaimed, Aye, Odin's beard, what is this I see amongst the sand and the pebbles? It is not what I think. Oh, but it is. Gold, gold here, on this shore, in this here hole. I'd never have thought it. Oh, to be smiled upon on such a grim day. How can I ever make sense of this luck? Hearing this exclamation of riches amongst the rock, the good soldier forgot all and every duty he had. In a flash, he was down from the bow of the boat and splashing over to Asipatl. Get out of the way, boy. Let me see. Let me in. He tossed Asipatl aside and began digging feverishly in the wet hole. Asipatl slipped behind the gold-blind soldier and hoisted himself up onto the boat. Within seconds, he'd untied it from the shore and was rowing away. It took the soldier a good while to come to his senses and see that there was nothing but rubble in this hole, which meant that the boy had lied about the gold. Wait, where is the boy? The soldier pulled his head from his hole and whipped around. The ship was far out already and sailing straight for the maw of the Meester Stirworm. The sun was now well up, and as the king and his entourage crowned the sand dunes, they were welcomed not by a ship ready to be sailed, but by a frantic soldier spluttering about mussels and holes of gold. Gripping Sickersnapper, the king looked past the useless soldier and out towards the beast. There he saw the small vessel, dangerously close to the stirworm and positively dwarfed by it. Despite being secretly relieved at not having to face the evil monster himself, the king was shattered by the prospect of giving his only daughter to it in a matter of hours. This small boat was his only hope. When he asked the mumbling soldier who was aboard, and was told it was nothing but a young farm boy, the king wept. Yet more life was to be lost. As Asipatl sailed closer to the Meester Stirworm, his terror reached a fever pitch. But he found he was still able to hear the fluttering song of his heart over its rapid beating. The mighty Stirworm was stirring and waking slowly. Every now and again it would open its giant mouth and yawn a yawn so great that it sucked in an enormous whirlpool of water dragging Asipatl's small boat closer each time. The closer he sailed, the more he could take in of the havoc-wreaking sea serpent. After each yawn, the huge quantities of water inhaled were expelled through wide gills on the side of the monster's gun-metal grey scaly head. Just as he noted this about the stirworm, it yawned once more. 
And now Asipato was so close that his boat was sucked deep into the cavernous maw of the beast. But Asipato knew that if he held on long enough and kept sailing his wee boat on top of the water, that the water would eventually lower. And lower it did. The water poured from the gills of the worm, and Asipato guided the boat to the back of its throat. There he bumped up against something solid, and he took his chance and hopped off, holding his peat in his pot as he did so. Just in time as well, for the worm had felt the boat, and hoping something edible and protein-rich was aboard, swept it into his towering jagged teeth and crushed it in an instant. Scanning the darkness ahead of him, Asipatl knew that he must head down into the beast, else he'd be eaten. And so, using the dim light of the smouldering peat, he wound his way through the body of the meester stirworm. After a good while, he came to what he thought was the liver. He put his hand up on it and he felt its oily surface. Knowing that fish livers are very oily and thus flammable, Asipatl began feverishly digging into the liver with his pot. Each swing helped scrape out a decent chunk, but as he got deeper in, he could feel the stirworm starting to rise. It knew something was wrong. Hurriedly, he took out one more scoop and then lifted the smouldering peat and pushed it in as deep into the oily organ as he could. And once it was in, he turned and slipped and slid his way back up the beast, desperate to reach a gill. And he did so just in time. As he slid out into the salty, cold water, a cavernous boom echoed through the beast. And then another, and another, and suddenly... A noise and force so colossal tore from the meester stirworm that Asipatl was thrown clean back to the shores of Orkney. So tremendous was this explosion that the tongue of the stirworm was thrown high into the morning sky and came down with such a force that it shattered the earth below it and created the strait between Denmark and Norway. Its towering teeth were scattered high into the air too, and when they landed, they created the lands that we now call the Shetland Isles and the Faroe Isles. And what remained of the huge beast's body became what we now call Iceland, and to this day the peat fire still smoulders just below the surface and occasionally breaks loose in molten hot lava flows. It was a miracle that Asipatl survived at all, but lo, there he was, covered in gore and sand, just down the beach from the king and his entourage, and the entire island, who had turned up to see if the princess would really be sacrificed. I think it's fair to say that they got a pretty good show. The king pulled Asipatl into a tight hug, and handed him the sword of Odin, Sicker Snapper. As he took the sword and looked up, he saw, pushing through the king's entourage, his sister, Mary, who hurried over to him and spoke into his ear. Look, 
Assey Patel, how's it going? Congrats on that pretty gnarly show, by the way. Um, I just got here from the castle, and you're never going to believe what I saw. The rumours are not only true, but much worse than whispered. The Queen and the Sorcerer have been plotting to kill the Princess for weeks, and they're so pleased that they finally convinced the King to kill her, and maybe even himself, that they were celebrating by, you know, doing it. When the king heard this, he was outraged and began to storm back to the castle to confront this conniving couple. But Mary told him that upon hearing the boom of the mighty Stoorworm's demise, they had fled the castle and were on their way to the mainland. But guess who just happens to have the fastest horse in all the land and the strongest sword in all the land? Why, it's our by Assipatel. And so... Mounting Gawswift and grabbing the goose pipe out of the pocket of his dad's jacket that the wee old woman was now rocking, he galloped over the dunes and out of sight. He caught up to the queen and the sorcerer just as they were boarding the boat on the other side of the island. He called for them to halt and the sorcerer turned. Upon seeing Asipatel, he bellowed a cruel laugh. For this was the king's answer to all his misdeeds. This silly little farm boy was all there was stopping him from stealing the queen and setting sail. Fine. He would dispose of the boy first, just to teach the foolish king one last lesson. The sorcerer was not scared of the boy or his sword, for he had magical protection pulled from the dustiest of spellbooks. As the sorcerer approached, ready to kill this boy where he stood, Asipatel drew not just any sword, but Sickersnapper, the sword of Odin, from his belt. He swung it down with such force that its ancient power easily cleaved the sorcerer's conjured defences, and then he thrust it through the sorcerer's heart, killing him dead. But he did not wish to take any more life than necessary, and so he tied up the queen put her on the back of Gawswift and galloped back to the castle. Here the king and his council voted to lock the queen away in a tower, never to see the light of day again. And then the king properly introduced Asipatel to his bonny daughter, the princess. And what do you know? It was love at first Meester Stoorworm killing. In time, the two were married, with Mary being maid of honour and best man all at once. A few years later, when the king died a peaceful death, Asipatel and his princess were crowned king and queen of Orkney, and they lived happily ever after. All right, what a story, what an epic, epic tale. I can just imagine it being told dramatically around a dark peat fire as the North Atlantic winds and rain rage outside a wee bothy on the Isle of Orkney. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I loved researching it, writing it and recording it for you. And I hope you guys are enjoying these sort of long form fairy tales that I'm doing. Again, thank you all so much for supporting us. Annie and I appreciate it so much. Until next time, Slanjava. Hey!